Thank you for joining us today at River City Church, a church living in love. If you have a prayer need, would like to speak to a pastor, or have questions about today's message, please email us at info at rivercitysmyrna.com. For more information or to give to the ministries of River City Church, please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. God. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to River City. Good morning, everyone. My name is Antramika Knight, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to River City this morning. It's frosty. Um, when I woke up, I didn't realize it was gonna be so cold, so I didn't pre-warm up my car. But I'm here nonetheless. Um, here at River City, we start every Sunday by reading a psalm. Um, and I'm going to read that, and then we'll pray, and then we'll welcome our worship team. The psalm this week starts at Psalm 139, verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 1 through 5, and then it'll skip over to verse 13. It says, and we're reading the ESV version. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book, in your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. May we bow our head in prayer. Father God, we just thank you. Thank you that we have gathered together to worship your holy name, Father God. Father God, may we not forget the holiness in which you demonstrate to us on a daily basis. May we appreciate the miracles, Father God, that are in our current times. May we appreciate the unexplained, Father God, and not ignore it and say things like happenstance and luck, Father God. May we give you all the glory. 
May we, Father God, just thank you upon your face that you have set to us. Father God, we thank you for that we have people to fellowship with. We thank you that you love us unconditionally, Father God, even when we can't comprehend what that means. Allow our hearts, which may be ungrateful at times, Father God, we ask that you forgive us in your infinite grace and mercy. In these things we ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. I'll just keep your eyes closed. Let's take a deep breath. Breathe in the presence of God. As in Jesus is standing in front of you. Standing at the door of your heart. needs the light to shine on it. Will you open the doors of the really dark places? Will you let him in to shine his light? The door that you're desperately holding on to, you are afraid to open it. Do you feel his love and his acceptance of you? Do you feel his delight in you? Does it make you brave enough to open the door? Because you don't have to change everything right now. You don't have to fix it and make it better. You just need to open the door. so, God, we're going to choose to trust you this morning. Sometimes we're really afraid to open that door. Because I get so comfortable in my ways of coping and in my sin and in my fear. I just don't want the light. I don't want to really see what's there. But you shining your light doesn't mean exposure to com- condemnation or judgment. It's your kindness that woos us to freedom. It's your kindness that woos us to change. And so, God, for the person here that just doesn't know how to open that door, that is feeling the pressure to fix themselves or make things right, to believe what they don't quite yet believe. We imagine putting our hand on that knob and just cracking the door. Let your light shine in, Jesus. Let us receive the light of your life in your love that we can be fully loved right now in this moment 
just sit for it. Just sit in, in a minute, guys, just for a few more seconds. Just imagine the, in the same way the light is shining into this room, bursting forth. Allow it to shine and warm your heart. We thank you, God, that you have searched us and you have known us. We are fully known, fully loved. Give us rest in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see everybody this morning. I love that I feel peace in our church and I enjoy being here. It's fun to want to be here. Can you guys hear me okay? Am I good? Okay, we're going to jump right in. So we've been in the book of Mark, and if you've been with us and followed what's been happening over the past eight or ten months, we've been preaching through the entire book. And we feel like that's important because we should understand and know the message of Jesus as much as anything. That doesn't mean that it's more important than the other parts of Scripture. It just means most Christians, especially in America, typically don't really know the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we got to know that. That's something we got to understand if we're going to be Christians, especially professing Christians. So, we've been in the book of Mark, and it's getting hairy. We're in chapter 12 now. It has gone through the past three years of Jesus' life. He is in his ministry. He is now two to three days away from his death. And so, it is escalating rapidly. It is getting real, really quick. And so... The Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes and the religious leaders are on a warpath now to destroy Jesus, and it's because he has now kind of made his case a little more clearer, and he's done some things in the temple recently. He's been in the temple for a while, but he turned some tables over. This is not something you do in the temple. This is their center for power. This is what he's coming directly against, and his language is war language. It's confusing to everyone because his type of war looks different than the type of war that they're thinking. So he shows up, he flips over tables, Herod sees this, understands this, he starts to unleash his guys. And so we're in the middle of what I would call a set of debates. And it's, the chapter is chapter 12, and it's just a bunch of different debates that these guys try and trap him in. And it's a little bit like the media showing up at his doorsteps and hoping that he says the thing, right, that completely destroys his reputation. But he never seems to do that. Jesus seems to unleash this wisdom that shocks even them. And they're pretty certain in each debate that they have the thing that will finally do it. And it's what happens here again is they think they have the thing that will finally put him under. It'll finally either make the people hate this king because he's, he's siding with Rome or it will make Rome have enough ammunition to finally kill him. And they're fine with either. So much so that two groups of people in this passage, the Pharisees and the Herodians, which are enemies, come together because they have a more common enemy, and that's Jesus. And so they're just really ready for this to take place. And actually, they're going to win this in terms of what they think in a couple days, right, with the death. So just a little context that I feel like I could rabbit trail forever because it is fascinating to me. But it's connected to um, some thoughts that N.T. Wright has written about, and he does a good job with context. So he talks about this passage and how it talks about the state, we're going to read the passage about the coin. There's a chocolate coin on your seat. There's no other reason for this other than we saw them this morning in here, and somebody gave those to us, and they were a coin, and we don't want to eat the chocolates because we'll all get fat. So 
We're talking about the coin today. Eat your chocolate. It's going to be good for you. All right? It's just a little bit. A little bit of chocolate, according to doctors, will make you live longer. And I know that's fact. I know that to be fact. So, all right. So this passage is talking about how the, the state and God, how, are these, how is this relationship supposed to happen, right? A lot of room for struggle, a lot of room for division, a lot of angst built around this topic. There's something in this right here I'm going to trip over eventually. Somebody save me. So questions arise about how do we, what do we do with these two things, God and state? And so the Age of Enlightenment did a few things that I want to talk about. So this was in the 1800s, and this was like the revolution in science, communication, and technology, um, the Age of Reason. This was philosophy uh, in Europe. And so when this happened, three main things were absorbed by society, even our society, that we still carry today that weren't there prior to that that's important to know. The first thing was that you should separate God and the state. So the idea was put God and church upstairs, and downstairs will be society and politics. And it happened. Clearly, they did that. And over time, it created a vacuum. For 200 years, it created opportunity for a lot of bad things to happen. While we say that Enlightenment brought some good things, it also produced things like Hitler and Napoleon. So... The second thing that happened was that politics should be categorized into two main sects and basically sects, sects, sects. And you should have everything that you need found within either one. This wasn't prior to that. And so, so much so that if you were to say that you were a Republican in America and someone heard that in Europe, they would automatically assume that you stood for um, the death penalty and gun laws are okay. And then if also on the reverse side, if you say you should never have the death penalty, then people automatically assume that you believe that Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. So this is realistically, this is realistically what people think about these two categories. The, tr the truth about the matter is it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple. And before the Age of Enlightenment, there wasn't really thought like that. So the third thing that happens in this is Progress and advancement are paramount, more important than really anything. And, and so much so that if there's anything that's old or settled, that it, it is hindering things from happening that need to be happening. So these are three things that have basically been absorbed by our society. Until recently, a lot of questions about, do these things really contain what they need to contain? People asking questions about, is this what it's supposed to be like? It's even produced the far other end, which is as dangerous as this one. So I only say all that to say those are thoughts that we carry in when we read a passage like this that this Jewish community would not think. They would not categorize it like this. There wouldn't be separations like we have. They would read it differently. And so I, I do fantasize about becoming a first century church because I like that it was beautiful. And I realize that that's romanticism and probably not possible because we're not in the first century. We're where we're at and God put us here. And so how do we live this, this message out here? Right? Let's not try and just become the first century, right? Like, even though it's on, like, Acts 2.42, the church, like, that's beautiful. That's not a realistic thing for us right now. We can capture the heart of that, but we are where we're at. The Enlightenment did happen. We have this stuff, right? We just need to be aware of how to put these things together, how to walk the path with these two things, especially when these two things seem to do this so much, and there's so much anger and resentment and bitterness and fighting about it. So... I want to read to you Mark 12, 13 through 17. I'm going to do it from up here. You can do it from down there. 
And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So that is easily recognizable as kind of peppering someone with compliments to let their defenses go down so that you can then destroy them with a jab or a punch. So they're really trying to kind of build Jesus up. You do all these things really well. Like when you hear compliments from people that you know aren't there to compliment you and you're just waiting for the like, thank you for saying those four things, but what are you really here to talk about? This is what they're really here to talk about. They say, is it lawful to pay, pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Let's pray. Father, this is such an enlightening passage. And we have such insight into the heart of what you desire for your people as we read this. Help it to be illuminated in a way that is real and fresh and not boring, that's deeper than just that's over there and this is over here. Help us to see it the way that you want us to see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So up until this point, everyone's struggling because they know that Jesus is bringing a kingdom. The Jewish people are prophesied about it. Old Testament passages pointed towards it. Jesus is now there, and the religious leaders are trying to figure it out. They know he's going to do something. They just don't know what it's going to be. And the clue that they get is the tables. When he turns over the tables in their power headquarters, they know. This guy's, this guy's operating in war language. This is not, he's directly in the center of our power, and he's doing this. They know at that point, this is about to start. So foes are rapidly sent to Jesus, and typically when Herod had an enemy, they did not last long. If Herod had an enemy, he would figure out a way to kill him, and he would find something to pull him up and to, to put him up against the court, and he would, he would be tra- trapped. So Luke 20.20 20 talks about what each of these passages are trying to do. And he says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, which is what we just read, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So the idea they have is actually really brilliant. So we, we read these passages, and we know Jesus, and we already know that he's going to win because he's Jesus, and he's going he's to drop a J-bomb on him, and they're going to be like, whoa. We already know that, but this is not what's happening. Their arguments are all legitimately sophisticated and really well built. This one is built around the penny. It's built around what's called the tribute penny. And what's interesting about this is they know when they ask this question that it's going to incite in all of the Jewish people a large amount of anger because this particular penny is a, is a tax you have to pay just to exist. So you're, you, just to be where they're at, just to exist. You're not, it's not for land. Just to exist, you have to pay this tax. And there have already been revolts built around this particular tax, the toll tax. Jesus, when he was a child, saw the destruction of a lot of Jewish people because they built up a revolt about this particular penny. So when they bring up the denarius, you better believe they knew that the people who were listening would remember that revolts were built around this. That this not only was about what Jesus thought should happen, but it's also about the treatment of their people. So when they bring it up, it's not just, what do you think's better with this? It's also about, this is the idea that has destroyed our people. And so Jesus 
being so incredibly brilliant because he's Jesus and because he has all wisdom, he asks for them to produce the coin. Telling, as it is, as he's producing the coin, they have in possession the hated coin, right? They produce it. Whose inscription's on that coin? You can pull up the coin, Bill. So the inscription on the coin basically says, Caesar is God, right? And so for the Jewish people, this was a troubling thing. Because for them, to pay this tax would be to admit that they are serving an idol. And so there's two camps in the Jewish community. There are the zealots who would not ever pay this and who will fight to the death. And then there are the peaceful Jews who feel like they have just been given the wrong plot in life and they're going to do it and they, don't want to, they just don't want to be killed. They don't want to suffer anymore. And so all of this is circulating within this conversation. And as soon as they bring it out and show, Jesus knows what to do. Whose image is on that? It's Caesar's image. Well, you pay to Caesar what's Caesar's, and you pay to God what's God's. So it's pretty interesting, right? So really quickly, Jesus makes a sharp contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God. Each has its place. So if you pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and it's our best attempt, and just this is fascinating as well. If a king would overtake an area, the first thing the king would do would create his own money. And the way that you would know how powerful a king was, was by, can you guys hear me? Was by how far the money spread. So the more powerful a kingdom, the more you're still using that coin over here, right? Or you're still using this coin over here. First thing is they would put their image on a coin. It was a man-made thing with their image on it. So Jesus is looking at it like, this guy made this? Give him what he made. Right, no big deal. These guys listening that have revolted against this are thinking, we probably put a little too much emphasis on fighting against that, Right? I'm, I'm, I'm having thoughts when I read this passage about the things we fight for as Christians that we think are blaspheming the Lord, right? Like the, the arguments that we jump, put ourselves into that are really ridiculous. Like the stances we make against things that God's like, you're in the wrong arena. Like pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. He's about to show us what is his, right? But I mean, I can think of like eight or ten things. I'm like, why, why do we fight about this? Like Starbucks, Target, like... Give Target what's Target's, right? Like, whatever it is. Why are we fighting about these things that are secondary? We don't need to form another revolt as a Christian community against something that he's not asking us to fight, right? He's not asking us to fight against secondary things. Pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. Listen, this is Jesus saying this. This is not a religious leader in that day. Pay to Caesar's what's Caesar's. Pay to God what's God's. So what's God's? Jesus, is, Jesus distinguishes And he draws us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. So the image of Caesar is on a coin. The image of God God is on a human. Will you pull this up really quick? Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Caesar's image is on a coin. The image of God is on you. The image of God is on his people. So he's saying here, put things in their proper perspective. A man-made penny, let him have it. You, you're mine. The all of you, the entirety of you, all of that other stuff falls underneath that part of it. He has dominion over everything. And this is what's so interesting to me is Jesus shows us how to do this. So if if I'm looking at this passage and there's 
I've heard 500 messages that pull apart the wrong parts of this, and I'm not the perfect speaker, but this is not just about saying pay your taxes. I, I believe we should if we live in a place, I believe that. It's not just about honoring leadership that even if you don't agree with, and I believe we should do that. This is something deeper. This is, it belongs to God, your God's, and everything about you first has to be settled in that. It's the bigger picture. That's why we don't need to fight the fight. Please, God, let me share this correctly. Think about our leadership right here, presidents, kings. Over and above that is Jesus, king over it all, according to Revelation. Why are we fighting here so much? Why do we base everything here? You believe in the last president? You believe in this president? Are you willing to base your whole life around that? Are you willing to fight the most powerful fight you have around that? Why? Why? What, what will it bring you? Should we have a voice in it? Absolutely. Should we get behind what we believe? Absolutely. Is it Jesus? Absolutely not. Do we have a voice in it? Yes. Rock your vote. Vote. Pay your taxes. Vote or die. Ride or die. I don't know. Is Tupac in there too? I don't know. Whatever it is. But listen. When I see the sticker on the internet that says, and I'm, and I'm really actually extremely thankful for the place we live and extremely thankful that people have fought for my freedom, but Jesus dying for humanity and people fighting for my freedom are not in the same bracket. They're not. So when I see a sticker that says, I stand for the flag and I kneel for Jesus, I want to destroy that picture and put this one up here and put this one down here because this has its place but it is not next to Jesus. Because Jesus also died for whoever we were fighting against. And if we can't see that clearly, we have put ourselves right there with Caesar, ready to fight the Pharisees. No, that is not the image of God. And what if Jesus would have done that? That's not God's image. You are blaspheming. They'd have been like, all right, well, now we're going to kill you, and you don't get to finish your message that you're going to use to help humanity. Enjoy that, Jesus. No, he didn't do that. He backed off of that argument for the bigger one, which was for all of humanity. Give to God what is God's. Stop fighting about nonsense. Rock your vote and do it with an intelligent perspective. But don't be tricked in believing that that is Jesus. It's not. Jesus is much more vast, much larger, much more all-encompassing. He is. Jesus is. He is literally described as I am. What? So have your opinions. Get behind and support. Don't let it be for the kingdom of this, kingdoms of this world. Don't put all of your eggs in that basket. It's a trap, right? And here's the most beautiful part of this whole thing, because I'm really, I, I really struggle thinking about the, the leadership that I particularly don't enjoy. Think about even like just historical figures that so according to Romans 12 and according to 1 Peter 2, these people were put in place by God. Like, What? So I, I struggle with this, but Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. And in this passage, see, he, he is speaking war language. And he's coming to fight a war, but he's not coming to fight people. He's making war against death. So he comes, and the kingdoms of this world's most powerful en enemy is always the same thing, death. It's always death. Whatever kingdom is in place, their number one most powerful thing is death. And it will only be satisfied with that. So Jesus comes, and his most powerful tool and most powerful weapon is to die. What a beautiful mixture, right? The world's most powerful tool is to kill. Jesus' most powerful weapon is to die. 
So not only does he satisfy the laws of God, right here, give God what's got his life, because he does that in three days. He literally dies for humanity, satisfying the laws of God and why he was sent here. But he also satisfies the law of man and gives his life because the government said you must not. That is... So the most powerful weapon of the kingdom of God meets the world's most powerful weapon. This, this kingdom wins. We see that death is destroyed and Jesus comes back from the dead. That's not normal. We're not normal. We're nice people and kind. But that is crazy. That you believe that means you're crazy. So it's all right to raise your hand sometime. All right? That's not even comparable. It's scary for you to raise your hands, which I, I, it's okay if you want to sit, but what the crazy thing is, is you believe someone raised from the dead. That is nuts. You're nuts. You're all nuts. But he did. Jesus is raised from the dead. So now a new kingdom advances on earth. And the new kingdom has a new king, and that king is over every king. Every king from that point forward that uses death as its main enemy, we already know it's not going to win. What's the world going to do? So for, in the first century, what you saw was martyrdom. You saw people dying. And not only dying, but willing to, joyful to, because they knew that the complete loss of self was the number one way that Jesus' gospel will go forward. So for Christians, they're like, bring it? You're going to take my life? That's just going to make this, this message much stronger. That's why we're still talking about it today, because we're not using the, kingdoms to, the kingdom of this world's tools. So just, just for you, which tools are you using with your gospel, right? Listen, if you've been tricked or trapped by the Pharisees into believing that you're supposed to use this world's tools to make happen what needs to happen, you have missed Jesus entirely. His whole message was selflessness to the point of death, even for your enemy. That is the message of Jesus. That is crazy. I want to read you. In the second century, there was a man named Polycarp who was getting heat for his beliefs about Jesus. And he was having to figure out how to live in a society that was pagan, that wanted to destroy Christians. And so he decides that he would honor this, this community, these leaders, but he would also honor God. And this is his story. This is going to take a minute. Warned that his arrest is impending, elderly bishop Polycarp has left Smyrna and hidden in a farmhouse. The threat of his life is real. Smyrnans have recently executed several Christians for their faith. Now a pagan mob is demanding the bishop's life. Smyrnans are fiercely loyal to Rome and to the old gods. This is not Smyrna. This is the actual. That's just interesting. Loyal to Rome and to the old gods. Kill the church leader, they reason, and his church will die. The governor dispatches soldiers to track down the old man who has the distinction of being one of the last churchmen who actually studied at the feet of one of the Lord's apostles. The long-lived John. The soldiers care nothing about this. Intent on locating him, they torture witnesses who reveal Polycarp's whereabouts. His hiding place is betrayed. Polycarp's moves to another. One must face marled and boldly, but when, when it comes, he believes, but no one should seek it. There's, there's a lot to be said about that. The authorities discover where he is hiding, and the soldiers arrive to arrest him. He welcomes them as if they are old friends. <laughs> he welcomes them as if they are old friends and asks if he could serve them food and drink. 
Requesting only an hour to pray before being marched to the arena, they agree. Overhearing his godly prayers, the soldiers wonder why they are arresting this man. Surely this is a good man. They allow him an hour, they allow the hour to stretch into two. Finally, they can delay no longer. They haul Polycarp in. When he nears the city, a heathen magistrate approaches in a chariot and takes Polycarp into it. The magistrate tries to persuade the Christians to sacrifice to the gods, but finding that he makes no headway with them, pushes him out of the conveyance so roughly that he falls and scrapes open the flesh of his skin. Showing as little pain as possible, the elderly bishop limps behind the soldiers into the amphitheater where great numbers of people were gathered. At the sight of him, the mob sets up, sets up loud cries of rage and savage delight. But Polycarp hears a voice telling him, be strong and play the man. Consequently, he does not allow the spite of the crowd to trouble him. The governor asked him to deny Christ and promises that if he will, his life will be spared. But the faithful bishop answers, four score and six years have I served him and he has never done me injury. How then can now I blaspheme my king and savior? When Polycarp rejects further pressures to deny Jesus and save himself, the governor threatens to burn him. Polycarp's turned the tables and warns them of the eternal fire. Good on you, sir. The governor ignores the warning and orders the execution to proceed. The soldiers prepare to nail Polycarp to the stake, but he assures them that won't be, ne that won't be necessary. So he is tied instead. The fire is lit and the flames rise around him. And as some of you have heard, but what is this? The fire parts around Polycarp and the flames avoid him. Eyewitnesses will claim his body glowed like gold in a fire. Finally, a soldier whose usual task is to put wounded animals out of their misery executes the bishop with the sword. The good old man is dead. An inspiration to others who will perish is similar, in similar circumstances centuries to come. Pretty crazy stuff. So it's pretty, pretty deep and <laughs> massive to carry. So the reason I wanted to share that part with you about the story of the first century was because they had to live in a society that was even more pagan than our own, that was much more dangerous to be in. And he didn't turn and fight, and he didn't seek to be destroyed, but he never forsook the first thing being first, and he ultimately had to pay because he wouldn't. So for you today, how do you take a message about a coin and about a Caesar and about God being first and apply it to your life. Two passages that I want to read to you really quickly. Will you pull these up for me? Matthew 6, 31 through 34. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The things that we build towards on this earth. And I'll even add there what kind of status you'll have if you'll get the next job, if they'll like you. If you'll get more, if you can buy that, if you'll have a savings, do not worry about those things. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Can you bring up Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The story of this coin is a reminder to us that we are to put him first. We talk about the good life in our church. This life that exists between what we do with our actions all day long, every day, all week. Not what we say. And so our, our role in putting God first happens between those two things. What do we actually spend our life on? If you want to know what your life is about, what do you spend your life on? Are you fighting in the kingdoms of this world and building an empire that will not last? Or are you fighting with the kingdom of Jesus? Are you seeking first the kingdom? Are you seeking first your own? Your actions tell you. I'm not here to make you feel bad. What are you living out? You will receive its reward. What you seek first, you will get. So Father, today, as we pray together, I ask you to remind us of who we are in you, God, and what's at stake. If you have to receive one massively important thing, it's that you are created in the image of God. Your identity is in Him and cannot be found outside of Him. Your image is in the image of God. So, Father, that we would have the identity to be a body of people realizing that that is who we belong to. Like the coin had Caesar's face, we possess your image even before we were born. Number two, forgive us for fighting with the weapons of this world and paying back evil for evil. Forgive us for trying to win battles that you're not trying to win because you've won the war. I'm asking that God would show you a weapon that you have yielded that has been given to you by the kingdom of this world in prayer right now so that you could set it at his feet, so that you could see the real, true work of Jesus come through. The work of Jesus is humility. The work of Jesus is long-suffering. The work of Jesus is dying. How can you die to self if you keep killing everything that he sends to help that happen? The third thing is, just because you're under the leadership in a country or a place in the world doesn't mean that you have to like everything. And if you see and notice injustices, does not mean you have to sign off on them. You have a voice, you should speak up, especially when injustice happens. Honor what needs to be honored, but when disgraceful things happen, it's also our role to help the leadership know that it's not okay. Speak up. It's good. Be intelligent with it, not just because your mom and dad did this when you were growing up, right? Be intelligent with it. Understand it. Speak up against the things that are unjust. Don't just sign off and say this is Jesus when you know it's not. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled any longer. If you see something that is supposed to be in the camp of Jesus, but you know it's not, don't be fooled any longer. Speak up with your Christian voice for the virtues that Christ carried, which is dying for others, dying for the alien, loving the enemy, and the people from other places, which is 
the value of life. These are the things of Jesus. These are spread across all camps. Don't be convinced just because this says this and this says this that that's all it is. It's not that simple. We need his wisdom. We need his wisdom. If you guys would all stand with me. I knew as I started this message, I had a chance of going all over the place. So my heart is that we could pray as the worship comes up to close out service. A prayer like what it says in Romans 12. The tricky part about this is the age of enlightenment. It's not that easy. We need wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit. You need to be able to have conversations. You need to be able to have conversations in this realm that aren't everything for you. Because this is everything. You need to be able to have a brother or sister who disagree with you and it not be the end of your relationship. That's so important. This is everything. Not this. So Father, I pray that we see clearly first our role in offering ourselves as living sacrifices to follow in your footsteps. How do we give to God what is His? Our lives are His, first and foremost. How do we have a voice in the secondary things like the government and society? Teach us, show us how to speak up like the Old Testament prophets did during injustice. Help us to put down the weapons. We're going to end today a little bit differently. Lance, if you're still in here, would you mind just going over to the Night of Healing prayer booth? Uh, Are you on prayer team up here? Okay, so we're going to have prayer teams up here for anybody who'd like prayer, but a couple people have confirmed with me even before service and even just believing. We keep having these images of you guys being like cups that God is wanting to fill, like empty cups that are needing to be filled. Two different people had something God spoke to them today about that. So if that happens to be you and you feel incredibly empty, we would just love to pray with you and ask that God does the filling, right? And then for anybody who desires any type of healing at all, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, I would ask that you go see Lance. And if you have any buddies that are on Night of Healing, because I'm just throwing this on you, on Night of Healing Prayer that aren't up here already, if you could just join him and be ready to pray for people who need any type of healing. Does that make sense? So, Father, we just thank you so much for today. For these next few moments, we just want to create a little bit of space to say, have your way, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance. We ask you to speak to our hearts, God. How do we respond today? For all those who do need a healing touch from you, give them the boldness to receive prayer. For anyone else who needs prayer, let them respond boldly right now in Jesus' name. And Father, I just pray that you would bless our people as we go, that we would follow your lead. We thank you for all the gifts that are in our life. They're all from you. We thank you for the community that wants to be together but wants to serve you. We thank you for everything, Jesus. We ask you to be with us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Much love for you guys. Awesome. Blessings. Thank you again for joining us today. And please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.